Let's see here. Can you hear me? Let's say a prayer. We were just having our own private Bible study here. Probably should include the rest of you. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the gift of your holy word, which inspires us and fills us with your spirit, so that, like Jesus, like you, we may go into the world loving our neighbors and proclaiming the the glories of your heavenly grace. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. Okay, so this is uh, really exciting for me because we're just going to read the Bible. It's great. One of my favorite things to do. Do you have any questions before we get started? So uh, by way of introduction, though, um, we'll look at this painting. You've got some paintings. In in Mark chapter 1... well, so just answer me this. What, uh, what characterizes Mark? What do you know about Mark so far? It was written to the uh, not the Jews. Probably, yeah. Probably written in Rome. Ooh, that's thick. Probably in Rome. Okay, what else? Yes. My notes here are that this is Peter's gospel. But yeah. Pro- pro- likely, yeah. In fact, we see that right away. Open up, open up your Bibles. Make sure you've got Bibles open to Mark. We're going to just be... Uh, jumping all around here. But you see this when Jesus calls the disciples. You'll notice things like this along the way. Verse 16, Mark 1, verse 16. Here's what happens. Here's how Mark says it. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon. Right. So how is, how is Andrew identified? He's, like, he's, he's, he's the brother of his big brother, right? So Simon has got this featured role already at the beginning. Um, and then Peter's conversation with Jesus at the center of the gospel, the confession. Who do you say that I am? Right? Peter gives this great confession. And then also, here's another wonderful thing. Man, I'm just going to have to slow down and not tell you too many things all at once. The great thing of talking about Peter being a source for the gospel, or this being Peter's gospel, how is Peter portrayed in the middle of, in the middle of Mark, Mark chapter 8? You know this, how this story goes. Who do, you say, who do people say that I am? A prophet, Elijah. Who, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay? The very next thing that happens, Jesus says, I'm going to have to go to the cross and die. Peter says, oh no, you may not do that. What does Jesus say to Peter? Okay, so now, isn't that fascinating? Um, that takes a, a startling level of humility, right? To tell that story about yourself. Because it, John calls, I think he calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. John is, a, you know, John was a special guy. And when you compare... Yep. Oh, yeah. That's a very different right. thing. And Peter, I mean, Peter has this history of... Well, you know, I mean, you have an impression of Peter. What are your impressions of Peter right from the get-go? Yeah, right. Oh, loudmouth, right? Just calm down, guy. Don't quit. Put your sword away, right? But then, um, like a lion. <laughs> yeah, right. He's, he's fierce, raging, ready to go. And then, you know, perhaps you know this, after Jesus has risen and ascended and we're in the early church, Peter doesn't stop. His behavior continues sort of the same way. He kind of makes knee-jerk decisions, so that Paul has to confront him to his face. Do you remember why Paul has to confront Peter to his face? Yeah, Peter, Peter was refusing to eat with uncircumcised people, which is the whole question of the early church. Can the uncircumcised, can the Gentiles be a part of the church? Of course they can. But Peter here is, you know, forgot. I don't know. He's, he's got 
to uh, work on that. But uh, this is one of the reasons why Mark is such a, a wonderful gospel is because Peter, Peter, if he's the source of it, doesn't hide the fact that um, he needs to be corrected all the time. He is, right. It was built into him, right? It was in part of his nature, right? Um, to not want to eat with the Gentiles. Yeah, not, to, not being brash and so forth. Okay, good. Um, what, what else? Just briefly, what else about Mark, the gospel, the way the story is told? What do you know? It starts not when he was a baby, but starts when he was a grown Right. In media race, right? In the midst of things. This is a, this is a, um, a literary technique. You'll find this often in ancient theater um, and now it's just a convention that's used. It's one way of telling a story. You just jump right in into the middle of things, and you pick up, you pick up the information you need along the way by the context. Um, and that's, this, this is related to another feature of Mark. You'll hear the word immediately. How many times? This like, I don't know. Pastor Nelson, I think, said how many times? 17. And, you, and in chapter 1... In chapter 1, it's over and over and over again, right? This happened, and immediately this happened, and immediately this happened, right? So we're just rushing into it. He's got so much to tell you, um, and he's taking you at, through all of this sort of housekeeping business at the beginning to get you to the cross, right? That's where he wants you to go. So already in the first uh, 10 verses, 11 verses, we get the appearance of John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. And this is the painting that I've given you there, the first one. There, um, there's just so many possibilities here. This is El Greco, a 16th century, late 16th century, early 17th century um, Spanish artist of Greek origins, that's hence El Greco. Um, his style is unlike you know, what, you, what you expect coming out of, you know, just a bit later out of the Renaissance, um, how would, what does it look like? How does it, how does it seem to you? How would you describe it? Jam-packed with people. Jam-packed with people, yeah. What kind of people are these, though? Angels, Angels right? So there's a lot of ethereal, heavenly beings. Con- just by way of contrast, turn to the next page. This is a 15th century artist. I think it's... I, this is... These names all blend together for me after a while. Pietro Perugini, maybe, something like that. What kind of people are in this picture, in this painting? This, is, this, is, this shows you all of the regions of Judea and all of Jerusalem coming out to be baptized by John, confessing their sins, right? So you have all of the... In there, too. What's that? There's a priest there. Is there? Isn't there over here? Yeah, right. <coughs> With a hat and everything. Yeah. They're, and they're certainly talking about, talking about Jesus. Right, so uh, that's one of the reasons why I love this painting is because you have, he gives, he gives image to what Mark says about everybody showing up, right? Everybody's there. But that's not true of El Greco, right? In fact, you have, you have almost exclusively angelic beings except for Jesus and John, right? So who's in, who's in the orangey, reddish color holding that blue? Is that me right? Um, I don't think so. I think it's a man, actually. Yeah, right. I mean, they are ministers to Jesus, right? So in the next scene, Jesus is cast out into the wilderness to be tempted, and the angels are ministering to him, right? So you get the sense that these, these people are ministering to him, caring for him, right? What's 
The faces are younger in the first one. Young men. Yeah. Opposed to the other one. Sure. Right. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, they are, they are, so, they are so prominent. And uh, their, their proportions are, I don't know if they're realistic or not, but they, you're definitely meant, you're meant to feel like they're just out of proportion, right? You've got... Um, all of the important features here, right? You've got the dove, the spirit descending as a dove. And you've got God the Father above, a shell, right? Is it a shell or a door? Oh, I'm talking about four. John has a shell. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at God the Father. Is that a door? Perhaps. With his reflections. What's the difference between John and Jesus in this painting? John's in the dark. John's in the dark, right? You remember what... Um, John says about himself in the Gospel of John. Say that, Mary. I must, I must decrease and he must increase. Right. Another another great figure of humility. John. I mean, John says um, he's he's full. He's prepared immediately to recede into the background because he's come to prepare the way for Jesus. But then Jesus says later of him, um, "Born of women, there is no one no one greater than John." Right. Um, but greater than him even is uh, the least in the is uh, the least of these the least of God's the least of uh, the, the most childlike basically. Yes, Krista. I think it's a wonderful. That's right. Now, interestingly, you've got two different yeah. two different garments they're bringing to him. Okay, yeah. red and blue. What do those what do those colors mean for you? Yeah, red red is the color of martyrdom. Okay, blue is the color of royalty, royalty or here you know eternity, right? Um, the heavenly Father will often be robed in blue. Okay. Um, I I don't know, maybe. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Take a look. Turn the next page, the last page. This is another El Greco. This is, uh, he's, you know, prolific. And this one came up as a part of um, a triptych, you know, so a, sequ- a sequence of paintings together on an altarpiece. This was one of those pa- paintings. Um, what do you notice about this one? The dove. The dove. Yeah, right? Apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. That's exactly the right word, right? It looks, I mean, you could have... You know, a black hawk flying in the, the helicopter flying over Vietnam right in the background there with the, the fiery sky. Um, yeah, it's a, it is apocalyptic. This is really important in, as you picture it because as the way John, te- the, way the, the way we hear Mark telling the story, he is evoking all kinds of Old Testament apocalyptic language. Or maybe not apocalyptic, but it, um, judgment fiery language, right? Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail. Um, for he is like a refiner's fire, right? This is, you know, this from Handel's Messiah. This is from, uh, from the Old Testament, from Malachi. Um, okay, put those aside for a second. Here's what I think we should do. Just going to look at the 
We're going to read it, read the text, and talk about it, okay? Oh, here's, I wanted to show you this. You don't have a handout of this, but look at the screen. I don't know if you can really see what's going on there. I mean, you don't have to know the, know the detail. This is, this is Matthew. This is Mark. This is Luke. This is called a, a synopsis because it puts the three Gospels side by side. This is the text that continues over here, Matthew, Mark, Luke. This is the text of the temptation of Jesus. So what do you notice? <laughs> Mark doesn't say much, right? He's getting straight to the point, right? He's getting straight to the point. Um, a man of few words, he's got somewhere to go. He's, he's like, if you, and, and I mean, I think this is fair to, to say, the stories, there's this oral tradition, right? People know these things about Jesus. He doesn't have to tell you a lot if you've got a, if you, you know, hearing the conversation all the time. And then, then Luke comes along. You know how Luke begins his gospel. What does he say? We've got all these stories circulating. I'm going to write, I'm going to tell you exactly how it happened in excruciating detail, right? Um, okay, so, but that's, this, is, this is notable. This is, this, is, um, this is true of a lot of the stories in Mark, but not all of them, not all of them. So we should pay attention to where Mark gives us more detail than the other Gospels, okay? Let's see here. I'm going to read a little bit, and then we'll talk about it. How's that sound? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so let's just pause there for a second. Uh, I have some questions to ask you about this, but first, what do you, what are your observations, or what questions do you have? I kind of wonder uh, the phrase with the Holy Spirit. Yep. Jesus said he had to return to heaven so that the Holy Spirit could come down. And... That's right. He will. Uh, I, yep. I will send you my Comforter. Right. The Paraclete. Yep. Right. Um, so. It's notable that here already at the beginning, John or Mark introduces us to the Holy Spirit. Okay. What else you got? What other observations? Kathy. Well, forgiveness of sins for the Jews were in the temple sacrifice. Right. Correct. So I guess I was wondering why John the Baptist would go out in the wilderness and forgive, or not forgive, that baptize. Without saying, yeah, without, without no. With no, yeah. Without because he is the precursor. I, I, right. To understand that, we have to know a little bit of the context, which we get. So Mark is already trying to give us the context in these two quotations right here. So we've got Malachi and Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 40, you know, you know the words that begin Isaiah 40. How does it begin? You remember? 
comfort, comfort ye my people, right? Says your God. Where do we hear that in church? When, what time of year? Christmas, Christmas or Advent, right? Comfort, comfort ye my people, says your God. Um, but that's not the whole of it. That's not everything that's going on in Isaiah. And, and it's perhaps not as comfortable as that sounds. Take a look. Let's, let's look at Malachi 3. This gets, to the, this gets to the reason why we need somebody in the wilderness proclaiming, apocalyptically proclaiming the forgiveness of sins because things are not working the way they're supposed to. The temple is not, is, the temple's not doing its job. The priests are not doing their job. Malachi 3. I would love to just do all of Malachi with you. But pay atten- so just, just pay attention to these features of Malachi. There, it's right before Matthew. So just two, we're just two books previous. Um, last book of the New Testament, the last Old Testament prophet before John the Baptist. If you look at chapter 1, okay, verse 2, so the verse 1 is just an introduction. This shows you how books are introduced. This explains why Mark begins the gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Malachi begins the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. It's a title, okay? Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So throughout Malachi, there's this conversation going on. God says something or God has done something, and the people are doubtful about it. Is did, how have you done that? Is that can, how can that possibly be true? Or how is that good for us? This happens throughout. So, that, so skip down just a couple of verses. You'll see, you'll see this pattern emerge. Uh, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. God's making this complaint against them. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests. The temple is not working. You priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? Right? You see, you see what's going on here? <laughs> Wait, just give me, tell me exactly where I've gone wrong. Um, and it's just, it's this sort of pattern of self-justification, okay? Um, skip ahead to chapter 2. And this leads us into chapter 3. This, this flows all together, okay? Um, chapter 2, verse 13. So you've, you, you did this one thing, and here's another thing that you do. The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altars with tears. You with me? Chapter 2, verse 13, with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. This is not a, this is not a new theme uh, in the, people, the history of the people of Israel. Prominent in my mind is the story of Saul, who suffers mightily because he disobeys God, and then God doesn't talk to him anymore. So you remember, the, the, we talked about this in high school Bible class. We were doing the second commandment. Curse, swear, you satanic arts, lie or deceive by his name. You shall not do any of those things. You satanic arts, what does that mean? Well, the great example in the Old Testament is Saul going to the witch of Endor, who sounds like a Star Wars character. Does she not? Okay. Goes to the witch of Endor. Because Endor is a planet in Star Wars, right? Right. Oh, I'm thinking. Okay. Yeah, okay. All right. So he goes to the witch of Endor um, because God's not talking to him, and he... It tells this witch to summon Samuel from the dead. The conversation is funny in some sense because Samuel's like, why did you wake me up? What's this, what's this nonsense? Um, and it says you, you've sinned against God, right? Whether or not Samuel is actually Samuel or 
a demon disguising himself as Samuel is a very lively question, right? Um, which is, gets to the point of why you don't use satanic arts, because you never really know whether you're dealing with the devil or with um, something else, right? Okay, so uh, you, when you offer bad sacrifices, when you are unfaithful in offering your sacrifices, they're not acceptable to God, right? And then the temple doesn't do what it's intended to do, okay? We're still in verse 13. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, so this false piety, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Right? We're so confused. Why does he not? And then he makes this, gives them the levels of this indictment against them about faithlessness. You weren't faithful to the wife of your youth. What was God seeking? Godly offspring. All he wants is for you to, to uh, be faithful in your families, and to raise up godly children. That's, just do that. This is what he wants, right? That's tough. They, do, they, don't, they don't manage it, okay? Verse 17, this leads us into, into chapter 3. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. This bald lie, right? You say that. And he delights in them. Or... Where is the God of justice? Now, why do you suppose they might say those things? Do you think they're just stupid to say that everyone who does evil in the sight of the Lord is good in the sight of the Lord? Why do you think they say that? Yes, they're seeing the wicked prosper. They're not seeing the evil be punished, evil be punished right? You see, what, you see what you say, if you, if you observe about the wicked that they prosper and then you say God must delight in them, what you're really saying is God delights in evil. And that's an affront to, to it's, it's um, wearying the Lord. Okay, so now this is all the backdrop, right? This is all going on, all this unfaithfulness. And then we get to chapter 3, verse 1, which, which Mark quotes for us as he introduces John the Baptist. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the, prepare the way before me. Okay, so that's, that's what's quoted, but we have to get the rest of the story. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Okay. Um, Mark, when Mark quotes to you the first verse of chapter 3, he expects that you know all of it. It's just, it was sort of part of the, it was the air they breathed. So when you heard, behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, it's like, it's like knowing the lyrics to a song. I don't have to quote you a whole song. I can't think of a song right now. I, can't, I don't have to quote you the whole thing. I just have to quote you a verse, and you're like, oh, yeah, I, I know what's going on in that song, right? Um, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. He's going to restore, he's going to restore the temple service. And refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Okay, so God is, uh, what, kind of a, what kind of work is he going to do? What kind of, what, what, what kind of work is the messenger preparing for? Restoring. Restoring, but how, how, what, how is that going to happen? Painfully, right? I think this, I mean, we, we, sort of, we sort of 
often gloss over this point. Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way is a terrifying prospect, right? That the messenger is going to come and who is he preparing the way for? The Lord of hosts who is going to come suddenly into his temple and then we're all going to get burned up, okay? Um, but you've got you to gotta know, you gotta, I've got to keep going here in Malachi. I'm sorry. We're studying Mark. Don't forget we're studying Mark. But that's right. Um, verse 6, here's the promise. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Right? Not because of your faithfulness, but because of my faithfulness. Now, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. What's, that? What's the word that John uses for that? Return to me. Repentance, right? John's just saying what Malachi said. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And here they can't shake bad habits. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby, this is my favorite part of the whole text, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. What a magnificent promise. Try me, God says. It's just fabulous. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear then all nations will call you blessed, which is the original promise given to Abraham, right? That in you, all nations will see God's blessing, right? And then they themselves will be blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 16, you get the people's repentance. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Okay, does that answer your question, Kathy? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, sorry, Bob, were you raising your hand? No, okay. Um, so you see John is coming, John the Baptist is coming into this context, and he's evoking this this whole narrative, right? He's saying, it's happening right now. Mark's saying, it's happening in this way. You see John, he's the messenger. You see Jesus, he's the Lord of hosts who's suddenly come into his temple. You tracking? Make sense? Um, so John is like, or so Mark is, I keep on, when, you, when I say John, I mean Mark, unless I say John the Baptist, okay? Because his name is John Mark, actually. But that's not why I'm confused. Um, he is... He's rushing us along. He's like, he's like, it's like he's saying, remember all this? Remember? Remember how the story's going? Remember where we've been? Put, call this all to mind and see now how God plays this out. Because what you expect from God when he suddenly comes into his temple like a refiner's fire, what you expect is not actually what you're going to get. The way that that fire looks is, is different than you think. The Messiah, God's anointed one, behaves differently than, than you think he should. This is, remember the, the macro structure of Mark 1 through 8 is asking the question, who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah or is he not? Okay? Who is Jesus? The second half, what's that answering the question? What question is that answering? It's on the paper, yeah, you can cheat. If you... 
what does it mean for him to be the Messiah? Because, uh, and you know this, they had, they had expectations, right? Rout the Romans, restore, rebuild the temple, restore the sacrifices, re- restore the, the services of, of Israel. Um, but it's not going to be like that. That's why you need the gospel to tell you, okay? All right. My next, here's my next question for you, unless you have any questions. In, in what we read so far, verses 1 through 8, just, just glance over them. Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you, Jody. I appreciate that. In Mark, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1, Mark is introducing all of these things sort of as he flies by them, right? What important theological concepts has he already introduced in the first eight verses? You already see, I'll give you the first the one I wrote down here, the Holy Spirit. We already have the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son of God. Yep. So we've got the Son, which implies who else? If you've got a Son, you also have a Father, right? So in the first eight verses, we already have the Holy Trinity, right? There's no mystery. about. I mean, people often get all bent out of shape, or they used to get bent out of shape, but the Trinity is not in the Bible, right? Okay. All right. It's right, it's right away. What else? What other concepts, topics, or themes? Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. And re- well, repent. Yep. Yep. The importance of baptism. Baptism. That's right. What else? Obedience. Obedience. Yeah, that, that, that's great. Can you tell me how that looks in this in these first eight verses? John is doing what he's been asked to do. Yeah, John is obedient. I was thinking. All the people are obedient, right? Right? Think about, so just think about the strangeness of this. You know the van that drives around with the bullhorn? What's the, I don't, I've never looked at it closely what, or listened carefully. What, what's the message that he's got? Oh, is that it? Okay, wow. Yeah. Repenting believer, you're going to go to hell. So now, I mean, in a sense... What's really different between that and John the Baptist, right? It's like Billy Graham, because you have you seen him on the news since he passed away in the early preaching. He was really, oh yeah, you know, fire and brimstone. That makes me think of that. This also makes me think about the road to Emmaus, because of the way he lays things out, explains who Jesus is. That's right. Yeah. And then the reference to the refiner's fire that you brought up just makes me think about a little bit about the road. That's right, which is, which is, helpfully, what Mark is doing. So just a bit later, just a bit later, Jesus is going to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, this is verse 21. You don't have to, to unless you can spot it right away. Um, this is what it says. He went into the Sabbath in Capernaum and was teaching, and they were astonished. Everybody was astonished at his teaching. Why? For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes did, which calls to mind the story... Uh, in particular, in our in our what we have in, the, in our scriptures is the story of Ezra the scribe. So the people of Israel were returning from 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 exile, rebuilding the temple. This is Ezra and Nehemiah go together. Nehemiah's the um, the cupbearer to the king or to the I don't know what you call him. He's the he's the cupbearer to so the big guy, and Ezra's there too, and they are reestablishing the rituals. The Feast of Booths is the important one that they're reestablishing. And 
as a part of their service, they open the book of the law, and they read it in, in the hearing of everybody. Let me just tell you what it says here. They read it in the hearing of everybody, and they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Okay? Which is, so, so Mark is doing that for us as we read the Old Testament. He's giving us the sense. He's interpreting it for us. He's telling us who this, who this is about. Just like um, uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah, and he says, Philip appears magically out of nowhere, and he says to Philip, who is this talking about? Is, the, is it the author talking about himself or somebody else? And Philip explains to him the whole thing, right? And says, who this is really talking about? Because that's the big question. Is this, if, if the Old Testament is true, if all the prophecies are true, then whoever that guy is, is a big deal. And we've got to know who he is, right? Um, and so Jesus comes along, and he's, he's teaching, opening the scriptures, as one who has authority, and not like the scribes who've now lost their, lost their mooring, as they interpret, scripture, as interpret the scriptures. I mean, we already have at this point this, this sort of massive buildup of traditions and um, conventions that are not uh, proper to scripture. We have all kinds of sort of fanciful interpretations of, of, of the scripture. Jesus is speaking as one who has authority. He knows the scriptures because he wrote them, right? Okay. There's one more important theme that we get in verses 1 through 8 already. Can you spot it? Can you, think, can you guess what I'm thinking? I don't know if it's an important theme or not, but there's words speaking. There's action. Yeah. Okay. It's, you know, even the beginning, in the beginning was the gospel. It's words. It's, right. But it's talking to somebody else. Right. Yeah, you know, messenger is giving, is talking or, or to somebody else. They're carrying something to somebody else. Yeah, that's right. That's this is actually really important for understanding. You, I think Pastor Nelson mentioned to you how, the, how gospel, evangelion has connotations of a royal, like a, a military victory message, right? The etymology of the word. I, this is when the high schoolers start to fall asleep when I start to do this. So I'll, I'll just do this once and then we'll move on. Look at this fascinating word. This is the Greek word for, it, here's how it looks transliterated, evangelion. Now, okay, so you recognize some word in there, right? Evangel, okay, now break that apart even further. Angel, right, huh. Lion. Oh, well, yeah, okay. No. No. <laughs> um, part of your, your nerves, you have your... Right, so, so yeah, okay, so I'll just tell you, angelion is the root, um, which is, you know, word for an angel. What's an angel? An angel is a messenger. Oi, ooh, oi, is good. Just, so anytime you hear that, like eulogy, eulogy, good words that you say about somebody, right? good words, good news, good message. Um, and so, you know, it's, it is the only appropriate word. You get the, you get, um, Angelion right here, too. Messenger, the, the same root, is right there at play. Okay, so you got words and actions, right? Um, there's this proclamation that's taking place. 
Um, John is preaching, but other people are saying things too. What are the people saying? They're hearing and acting as a result of their hearing. Right. Confessing their sins. They're confessing their sins. Okay? So here you have this, uh, already this um, pretty clear description of what it means to uh, repent, to confess your sins, and to receive forgiveness. To turn. It is, it is a turning, right? So confession implies that you have fully sort of acknowledged your needs. You don't, you're not just turning 20 degrees, right? Return to me. You were going, you were going in that direction, and I want you to come back this way, right? I want you to come all the, turn around completely. Um, and that really is, is clear when you, if you understand the, the fact that J- J- John is preaching a really traumatic message, right? Lots of, lots of thunder and lightning and, um, you know, hellfire, so that in order to respond to that, you've, you kind of have to be turning around 180 degrees. You can't just sort of do it part way. Holly. I know it says in verse 4, back in baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. John is not able to forgive their sins, though, correct? Um, well, not, not on his own account, right? Not, so there, there is this sort of strange, like what's the relationship between John's baptism and, and the baptism that Jesus gives to the church? It's an interesting question. Um, he can deliver the forgiveness of sins, because he's pointing to Jesus, right? So remember what he says in, the, in John's gospel. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in, in a few weeks, we're going to have this um, juxtaposition of John chapter 3, where you know, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and then we have the verse that you all know, for God so loved the world, right? Just prior to that, um, uh, the text goes, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Remember the story of the bronze serpent? Numbers chapter 21, the people are, they sin against God, they grumble and they complain, and so they get bitten by serpents and they die unless they look at the serpent that's been lifted up on the pole, the bronze serpent that's lifted up on the pole. Well, Jesus is now the one to whom you look and your sins are forgiven, right? So this is the authority that John the Baptist has to do it, is he's pointing ahead, right? You, you don't get the whole story from John, you have to get to Jesus. Um, so he, he doesn't pronounce, he, he, I w- my guess would be, like to, to draw a distinction, he wouldn't say, I forgive you your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he's proclaiming God's forgiveness to them, right? There's, there's a difference there. So the second part was, if that, that is, yeah, work that out, uh, the notion or the theology with forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what Jesus is going to do when he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. Right? John the Baptist. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's the difference. Yeah. Um, and, in, and here's a an, an helpful way to think about it, too. So we, we need baptism now in a way that they didn't need baptism 
when Jesus was with them, right? So we need baptism to deliver Jesus to us. But when you've got Jesus there, you don't, you don't need baptism in the same way, right? But when Jesus departs, when he leaves, he says, here's how I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to send you my spirit, right? Um, who's going who's to work through the water and the word. Krista. Um, <clears throat> Pastor, is it uh, that Jesus didn't baptize people? Right. Right, he didn't, yeah, why would he? <laughs> yeah, you know, that's actually the question. Yeah, I mean, he just, all he has to do is touch them, and they're, they're made well. Their sins are forgiven. All he has to do is talk to them, and their sins are forgiven, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, Kathy. Later on, I can't remember which apostle it was, but came across Christians, and they said, have you been baptized? And they said, well, we were baptized by John. Right. And they said, well, no, we're, now we're going to do it this way. Right, and, 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 and that's, that's a helpful example. It's a bit confusing. We don't exactly know what's going on there. But what's implicit is that if you've got just the baptism of John, then you haven't heard the whole story about Jesus, right? Because Jesus comes and he fills in all the blanks, answers all the questions. He's the fulfillment of it. Marilyn. I have a question about, is John able to forgive their sins the same way a pastor does today where they're announcing the forgiveness? I, no, no. Be, no, because, so, so what gives a pastor the authority to forgive sins? Yeah, when does he, do you remember when he does that? Okay, so in, yep, in ordination we invoke um, the words of Jesus in John chapter 21. Yep, so that happens across the, across the, the Gospels that he hands over the keys. But let's see here. I'm sorry, chapter 20, John 20. Listen to this. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, this is after the resurrection, the disciples were in the room for fear of the Jews, and Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad. And he said to them, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Right. So that sending is crucial. Jesus sends the apostles to forgive sins. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Okay, so that commissioning, that sending, um, gives pastors the authority to forgive sins because Jesus attaches his Holy Spirit and his words to the office. Now, the office of a prophet is different, right? Prophets often had really sort of narrow um, bounds within their authority. Um, there's the great story of um, the prophet Balaam who is, uh, who is summoned to curse God's people, right? And remember the story with his donkey, right? He has this argument with his donkey because there's an angel who's going to kill him and the donkey sees the angel. Um, but Balaam, his job is to, to bless God's people, and so when he tries to curse them, it come, what comes out is a blessing, basically, right? Um, he has this narrow, this narrow job description. Same thing is true of John, the Baptist, right? His job is to point to Jesus, right? So every, every depiction that you see of John the Baptist, we should look at a few that are just of John. I don't know. Yeah, you got on this one, you see John holding this staff, 
it's, a, it's, a, it's most often a, ba a, a flagpole. And I don't know if this is true of this. I don't, think, I don't see it on here right now. But there's, there'll be a lamb in the painting too. There's always a lamb. And if it, especially if it's just of John. There's a lamb. And then on the banner pole, there's a flag that says something like, Ecce Agnus Dei, behold the Lamb of God, right? That's how you know if you've got John. Is he saying that? Okay? So in some sense, in some sense, we solve all, all of our questions about what John was doing if we understand that he was provisional, right? He was getting us to Jesus. He's the messenger preparing the way. Okay? All right. How are you doing? How's the, so I don't want to... There's, there's always this sort of middle road to find between spending too much time on a section and spending too little time on a section. Um, if we quickly go through the rest of this chapter, uh, that's like a lot. Okay. Um, we could turn over to chapter two for next week for Pastor Nelson, but maybe we'll just do a little bit more. Okay. Just to get you, here's what we'll do. We'll read it just a little bit more to see what other important concepts, themes are introduced already. Okay. Verse, verse nine. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So already there, again, you have Father and Son and Holy Spirit, all in one nice package, right? This, verse 12, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We'll stop there. Stop there. Verses 9 through 15. Okay. What else, do, what else is introduced here? What other notions is, is Mark putting on the table and just... And Temptation. Temptation, that's right. Nancy, were you going to say something? Well, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, that's right. Okay. Yes. Uh, in regards to the baptism of Jesus, do you think all the people heard the words? It's a good question. Look. The disciples, they were called until the next Yeah. Right. But uh, do you think they were there and heard those words? It's a good question. So I don't know whether the disciples were there. Um, if we take Mark literally, everyone was there, but probably not. At the very least, they heard about it, right? This is, this is the kind of place where news like this would spread pretty rapidly. Now, as to whether or not Jesus was the only one who heard it, what do you notice about what the voice, the voice does here in verse 11? What do you notice? You, yeah, you, you are my son, right? So the, at, there it's directed to Jesus. Now, in Matthew, it's a little bit different. Um, Matthew 3, verse 17, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, right? So at, at least according to Matthew, um, we have the sense that everybody else heard it, right? It's important here that Jesus hears it directed to him, right? That's important. In the background there is Psalm 2, this royal 
um, coronation psalm. Uh, it, the, the language is borrowed. God's quoting himself. I guess that's, you can do that. Um, verse, chapter 2, I will tell of the decree. Psalm 2, verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Um, again, this son who's God's beloved this man who's God's beloved son and being crowned has come to do some devastating work, right? Break them in pieces with a rod of iron. So it's for everybody, though. The voice, the proclamation of the voice, this is why Mark tells us, right? It's, we have to know that about Jesus. Holly. Um, I know that there is the 400-year gap between Malachi and the New Testament. When's the last time that all the people heard God um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so once you have, as soon as the people inherit the land of Israel, enter into the promised land, they're already separated. They're already disparate. So some tribes remain on the, the east side of the Jordan. They don't even cross over the Jordan into the promised land. So already they're beginning to be disparate, but then you have exiles in which they're scattered everywhere, right? So probably not since since Mount Sinai. Yeah. Okay. Barb. Um, I haven't thought about this before, but as I'm reading this, and it talks about John was arrested, Jesus came together, preaching the gospel of God. Yeah. Now, I think of the gospels as the gospels that we've got today of the whole life of Jesus, but what was the gospel of God that John was preaching that they were supposed to believe in. Right. So, so um, there's, there's some ambiguity. When we, when we have the word of, it's not always clear, right? Whether it's the gospel that belongs to God or it's the gospel that's about God. Both, really, right? So the good news about God, the good message about God. That he was going to send a Messiah? It was more... Now, this is great. So now, so now this is Jesus, right? So we, went, we transitioned from John preparing the way. Now we're in verse 14 and 15, and Jesus is speaking. He's proclaiming the gospel of God um, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. The easy solution to this, or the, the easy way to sort of picture this in your head, is when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, what's he talking about? He's talking about himself, okay? And so, and so the gospel is about him. It's, 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 it's the message about him and what he's doing. Um, and, in, and also, it is the same story that's been told from the beginning, right? So when, so when Jesus opens the scriptures on the road to Emmaus, um, he's proclaiming the gospel of God from the Old Testament, right? Um, but the, the difficult thing for people is realizing that he's now talking about himself. And we, we see this later in, as the Jews are upset about the temple. Destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. John tells us he was talking about the temple of his body, right? So Jesus has come. And we don't, we don't, Mark is not so much about this as the other Gospels are, especially John is about how Jesus comes and fulfills fulfills everything that has happened, that, that's been promised, and all of the institutions and all of the ways that God saves his people. Jesus comes and takes those over and, um, and does more. But 
um, at least here in Mark, we have the notion that when Jesus is preaching, he's just saying what's God, what God has been saying all along, right? Uh, we sing it in the Tazay song, right? The kingdom of God is justice and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's right. Yeah. Embodied in the person of Jesus. Go ahead, Krista. Uh, only, uh, you know, I'm always wondering why the Jews are not believing in Christ, you know, because um, it's right from the beginning that uh, Jesus is there. Right. Well, okay, yep, and so here's, this is the reason why we have the Gospel of Mark. The reason why the Jews struggle with it is because Jesus does not look like the kind of Messiah they expect, right? You don't, you don't a Messiah who dies, a king who dies, you know, a king whose throne is the cross is no king, right? He's not like David, right? And Solomon, who was wealthy and wise, right? Um, nah, he's not like that. That's why Mark has to tell us the story, right? He has, to in, he has to invert it for us. Okay, you doing all right with all of this? Is this okay? Um, we'll probably pick up the pace a bit, maybe. We'll see. I can't promise anything about Pastor Nelson, I'll try to pick up the pace when, I, when it's my turn again. Um, you have any questions before we go? We like it in depth. Okay, okay. We'll try. Uh, I, the more the better. <laughs> okay, so somewhere in between. All right, how about that? Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, see you next time.